Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Sunday, December the 5th, 2021. It is currently 3.24 p.m. Central Time, and once again, I'm coming to you live from the empty sanctuary of Victory Baptist Church, located right here in Ovalo, Texas. Now, here's a question, all right? I don't know what church you go to. I don't know if you're at church this morning, but since I'm sitting here in an empty sanctuary, here's an important question. Uh, People arrive here to this church for our worship services. They listen to the preaching of God's word. We may pray, sing, whatever we may do, but they arrive at church. But at some point, the church service ends, right? At some point, the clock says, okay, you've got to stop preaching. The service is over. People get up. They gather their belongings. They walk out the front door of the church. They get in their car and they drive back into the culture and the world in which they live, in which they work where they go shopping, where they have friends, where they do different activities for entertainment. They, at some point, they leave the church and they go back into the world, into the culture. And I know I haven't gotten to the question yet. Just stay with me. I'll get to the question. I'm, I'm, I know you're thinking, what's the question? Okay, just, just stay with me, all right? So they get in their car. They, they, get, they, they drive back into the culture where they live, where they have their relationships. And, they, and they're there within the culture Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, even you know, obviously parts of Sunday. It's just a very few hours out of each week that they, in a sense, leave the culture to come into church, to, to come back to where they can hear the word of God preached. Now, maybe uh, during the week while they're out there living in culture, Maybe they're listening to sermons. Maybe they're reading their Bible. But they spend a lot of time in the culture. And I think we can all agree that the culture in which we find ourselves in 2021 is no longer a Christian culture. I mean, you could argue, when when was it ever a Christian culture? But clearly, Christianity has lost its influence. It doesn't dominate people's thinking anymore. And even statistics say that very few professing Christians even have a biblical worldview anymore. But if you are a Christian, now here is the question, all right? It took me a long time to get to it, but here's the question. How should you as a Christian live as you find yourself in a post-Christian culture, in a non-Christian culture? How should you live? Now, Christians have debated this and had have had all kinds of different approaches to culture, right? Some Christians are very much involved in culture. They're like, I'm in it, but I'm not of it, but I'm definitely in it. And so they're involved in all kinds of different things. They're right there in the culture and they're not too worried about trying to do certain things to, to, to show that they're different. They may try to show them, their, themselves they're different and maybe how they live and in a sense of their attitudes, the way they think, what they believe, but that they may not look for a more, how can we say, external ways to demonstrate how they are different. In other words, you're going to just see them right there in culture. And then you may find out obviously that they are a believer, but they're, they're, they're very much right there in it. 
that that don't really try to uh, hide from it. All right, I know that may not be the best description of that of that perspective, but that that one's much much more. We'll call this an involvement mentality. They're in it. They're involved with it. Now, there's been another approach to culture, and that approach has been not involvement but basically withdraw from it. They are going to withdraw from culture and they take things like, okay, we're not going to watch, we're not going to go to the movie theater. We're not going to participate here. We may not go to anywhere that sells alcohol. We're not going to do this. We're not going to go to that activity. We're not going to go to that activity. We're going to dress differently. Uh, the, the ladies may not wear pants, only wear dresses. They, they don't cut their hair. They may have very few, a little bit of jewelry and almost no makeup. They, they, they don't go here. They don't do that. They don't participate in this. I don't participate in that. And they are known by all the things they don't do and that and they make it very known. Nope. We don't do that. We don't celebrate Halloween. No, we don't participate in that. No, we don't do that. No, we don't do that. No, we don't go to a public swimming pool. No. And just, you know, on we don't play cards. We don't I mean, you just go on and on and on. The list, depending on the group, may be very long, but it's a definitive uh, list that clearly tries to give a distinguishing mark that we're not a part of the culture. So in their cases, they live in it, but they're not a part of it. They, they're, they're, they've definitely withdrawn from it. They're not engaged in it. They don't really participate in it. They just they may have to participate by going to work or doing these things, but the, their approach is much more withdrawal, isolation. And yes, you go out and try to witness to people but that's kind of about it. Now I know those are those are not 100% great descriptions uh, of the two ideas. I would take, you know, we could spend hours trying to say, well, here's here's one characteristic, but there's always going to be exceptions. And Christians have kind of fallen in, you know, well, you can think of it this way. If you go back through church history, you kind of had what was known more as the evangelical movement, which was much more involved in culture. And then you had the fundamentalist movement, which was much more withdrawn from culture, much more isolating. You know, no, we're not going to send our kids to to a secular school, to a government school. Well, homeschool. No, our kids are not going to go to a secular university. They'll go to a Christian university. You just, you know, on and on, just all these different ways of separate, 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 separate. And everyone can argue, no, this way is the best way. No, this way is the best way. No, your way is wrong. No, your way is wrong. But there's been, and and those are maybe two clear different approaches and there's all kinds of variation in between, right? I mean, all kinds of things. You'll have some Christian parents would be like, absolutely not. My kids will not watch Harry Potter. They will not read the books. That is satanic. That is evil, Others will be like, no, they can watch it. We will just discuss it and talk about it. So, so like, how much are you involved? What do you abstain from? What music can you listen to? I mean, there's just so many different areas where people are trying to figure out, how do I live in this culture? How do I live in the culture? What can I do? What can I do? Where do I draw that line? And there's a famous book, a very, very famous book, which we've talked about right here on this podcast a long time ago. I'd, I would have to go try to find the episode. But this approach is called The Benedict uh, Option. The Benedict Option, the book was released on, in, on, in 2018. I think it was April the 3rd, 2018. The Benedict Option. And here's the whole title of the book. The Benedict Option, a strategy 
for Christians and a post-Christian nation. So the idea is, hey, you're in a post-Christian nation. You're in a post-Christian society. Here is the strategy and how to live now. And, and, and look, Christianity, and no matter what's going on in the culture, there's always this different approach to how can we live? What should we do? Every, every, it seems like every few years, someone has a new strategy, a new approach and what we should do and how we engage. And, 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 and people kind of find a church in many cases that goes along with what they feel should be the right approach to how to live in society. And you get two or three Christians together and you can get, you can get some very serious differences of opinions on what to do. Well, I'll just give you an example. Here's a good example. It's December, right? Some Christian parents are like, hey, you know what? If my, if my kids hear about uh, Santa Claus, fine. I'm not going to say anything about it. They can go along. They can believe it's real. We may go along with it. We may play along. We may even put presents on, under the tree that's safe from Santa Claus. We, we may take, him, you know, take them to the mall so that they can see Santa Claus, get their picture taken. If they want to write a letter, we'll just go along with it. It's no harm. It's childhood fun. It's great. And you'll have other Christian parents will be like, absolutely not. He doesn't exist. That's a lie. I'm not going to go along with their lie. I'm not, no, I'm going to let them know that, that first of all, that's not true. That's not real. And they may go to extreme levels to t- keep their kids away from the whole Santa Claus thing. And they're going to say, no, it's about Jesus. Two families living in the same culture with very different approaches and what they do with something like Christmas, Santa Claus, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, et cetera, et cetera. Same thing with Halloween, and you can go on and on and on. These issues have been going on for a long time, but this famous approach, and it became pretty famous, became a New York Times bestseller. It's called the Benedict Option, a strategy for Christians and a post-Christian nation. Let me just remind you a little bit about the book, all right? Uh, From the inside, American churches have been hollowed out by the departure of young people and by... uh, a pseudo-Christianity from the outside. So from the inside, young people are departing the church. It seems to just becoming, it's becoming more and more empty, more and more hollow. It's, it's got a problem. Outside, there's a pseudo-Christianity from the outside. They are beset by challenges to religious liberty and a rapid secularizing culture. Keeping Hillary Clinton out of the White House may have brought a brief reprieve from the state's assault, but it will not stop the West's slide into decadence and disillusion. All right, so they're saying, look, and that's was 2018. Hey, things, things are going to get bad. Things are going to get worse. All right, so what do you do as a Christian? Well, let's see what they have to say here. The author here, argues that the way forward is actually the way back, all the way to St. Benedict, the 6th century monk, horrified by the moral chaos following Rome's fall, retreated to the forest and created a new way of life for Christians. He built enduring communities based on principles of order, hospitality, stability, and prayer. His spiritual centers of hope were strongholds of light throughout dark ages and save not just Christianity, but Western civilization. All right, and then uh, I'm skipping down here to the last paragraph. The Benedict option is both a manifesto and a rallying cry for Christians who, if they're not to be conquered, 
must learn how to fight on culture war battlefields like none the West has seen for 1,500 years. Yet it's, it's for all mere Christians, Protestant, Catholic, Orthodox, who can read the signs of the times. Neither false optimism or fatalistic despair will do. Only faith, hope, and love embodied in a renewed church can sustain believers and the dark ages that has overtaken us. These are the days for building strong arcs for the long journey across the sea of night. And so the Benedict option is their plan on what we should do and how we should withdraw and how we should build these communities and what we should just basically remove from our lives. And and you can go through all of that. It was one approach. Well, I... I know that approach. In fact, I was going to do some, possibly do some studies in the book. I never got around to it because there's always so many other things going on. But I would challenge you, purchase a copy of the Benedict Option. I think if you're a member of the Theology Central Book Club, you probably got a notification when I added the book a long time ago. New members to to it may not. I may have to add the book again. Let me see here. I don't know if I can, can even add it again. Let me see. Let me see if I can add it. Okay, I've added it again, so you may get a notification if you're a part of the Theology Central Book Club. If you're not, go to theologycentral.net, look for the little uh, menu, uh, look for the menu, and it'll say Theology Central Book Club, and you can join. It's absolutely free. You don't have to buy anything. Just whenever I add a book, you get a notification, and it's just, it makes it easy when I'm talking about different books. So we may have to do some, some work on that book and just look at its option. Now, the reason I'm talking about that option is, well, I don't know what day it was. A couple of days ago, a week ago, it may have been two or three weeks ago. I don't even remember. On issues, etc. Christian radio program that comes from a Lutheran perspective, they did a program called the St. Peter Option. Okay, what is the St. Peter Option? Does it have anything to do with the, the Benedict Option? Is it a new strategy for how we should live? What do they have to say? As always, I haven't even listened to this in advance because I like to have our listening time together to be very real and organic. Sometimes that's smart. Sometimes I I regret doing that, but we will see. I got ready to listen to it and I'm like, you know, I'm just going to stop and we'll just listen to this together. So we'll, we'll see. And, and, and it would be, I, I bet, I, I, and I could challenge you to do this or you should just do this on your own. If you took a notebook and you just tried to write down like, what, you know, start kind of writing down your perspective on how a Christian should live in a post-Christian culture. You could be writing down like when it comes to entertainment, what entertainment can a Christian participate in? What should they not participate in? What should they, you know, what should they do this? Should a wife work outside the home? I mean, you could go on and on and on and on and on and on. There's so many issues. Uh, should your children be homeschooled? Should they go to a public school? You can, and you will, you'll start, as you start writing down all of your perspectives, when you finally are done writing, you'll be like, well, there's your perspective. There's your, your idea of how a Christian should live in the culture which we currently find ourselves. And trust me, if someone who lives right across the street from you is listening to this same podcast, and they were to take a notebook, and they were to write out their views, most likely your views would not agree. Why don't they agree? Is there room for differences here? Is there one dogmatic way that is supposed to work? We, we could ask a lot of questions. Let's see what they have to say about the St. Peter option. Again, issues, etc. And uh, let's, let's see what they have to say. 
And uh, they they actually did two parts on this. I don't know if we'll do two parts, but we'll at least get an introduction because I'm just interested to see, well, do they even mention this, the Benedict Option? They have to mention the Benedict Option because it's so famous. I mean, the book sold a lot of copies. So let, let's just jump in and see what we discover on this Sunday afternoon. Here we go. We often hear that we Lutherans are people of the gospel. Therefore, we're not as concerned, maybe even hardly concerned about what's going on in the world around us. After all, this world may be going to hell in a handbasket, but Jesus is coming back. And so we don't really need to concern ourselves with what's happening in the world, no matter how difficult it becomes for, well, even Christians. Most often we hear that opinion from pastors who can tend to live insular lives from those of the parishioners. The parishioners, on the other hand, do want to know what happens when, well, the progressive hammer comes down at work or when they're being asked to violate their conscience in some other way by some other kind of authority. There have been options laid before us, one of the more famous ones from Rod Dreher, the Benedict option. Okay, stop right there. The Benedict option. All right, so they just mentioned it. But so I, I do find it interesting when the progressive hammer comes down on us. Again, it's, it's, it's the church is always looking at the liberal, the progressive as the enemy, not seeing the enemy of the conservative right hijacking Christianity. I, I always have to point that out. It's just every time I listen to a Christian program, it's always the progressive, the liberals, they're out to get us. What do we do? How do we handle it? What do I do when they drop the hammer on me? How am I going to live? And I'm, I'm not saying that there's never a concern for it. It's just sometimes what we do is we just ignore how the right conservative ideology hijacks the church, but that's a whole different podcast episode. So let me, let me try to explain something really here. He makes a good point, though. Pastors who are not bivocational but full-time pastors, they, they always have to realize that in some ways they are isolated from maybe what's going on in the culture. They're, they're, they, you know, they go to church. Their life is church. Their life is studying the Bible, reading the Bible, studying theology, preparing sermons, counseling people. That's their life. The, 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 the parishioner, the, the person sitting in the pew, they have to go off into that culture. So sometimes as a pastor, it can be very easy to say, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that. And then they're like, well, I've got to go live out there in the world, right? I mean, it's easy for you to say you spend all day sitting in an empty sanctuary talking in a microphone. What, 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 yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm talking directly to me here, right? Right, this is my life. So I don't have to worry about any of the issues. However, now, at least for me, the good thing is I, I've spent a, most of my, about at least half of my ministry, maybe a little more than half of it as bivocational. And so I had to go to work Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and deal with lots of those issues. Sometimes pastors can forget. And it, it's, it's, I think the person sitting in the pew sometimes like, so how do I take my Christian faith into a non-Christian culture? And what... When do I, what do I do? When do I draw that line? When do I fight? When do I do this? When do I do that? How do I live? And it does raise a lot of questions. So let's see what they have to say. I just, I'm glad they mentioned that the, one of the most famous, basically, options in recent times is the Benedict option, which is actually, well, we could go back to St. Benedict and we could, we actually, I think, have done some teaching on that as well, but we'll, we'll, we'll have to look into all of that later. Let, let's see where they go here. 
and it has a lot of good things to say. Is there more in Scripture than just diagnosing the doom and gloom and saying, we Christians need to build our own? Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're beginning a new series with Pastor Peter Bender. It's called The St. Peter Option, Living as Exiles in a Foreign Land. Today we'll talk about Christian joy and hope under persecution and suffering. Pastor Peter Bender is pastor of Peace Lutheran Church in Sussex, Wisconsin, and director of the Concordia Catechetical Academy. He's currently leading a Bible study on the St. Peter Option. Peter, welcome back. Good to be with you, Todd. Very happy to talk about this topic. Why that particular title, the St. Peter Option? Well, I think many of the listeners will uh, understand that there's a book out there, The Benedict Option. It came out in uh, 2016, I believe it was, A Strategy for Christians in a Post-Christian Nation. Uh, 2016, um, when I was looking at Amazon, it said 2018, so that may have been 2018 for the Kindle edition. I don't know, so I stand corrected. If if 2016 is correct, then then okay. So 2016, um, yeah, okay. I still thought it was later than that. I still, all right. Maybe I I just always want to be as correct as I can be. So you can look up the date and make sure who is right. Is it 20? Maybe it was 2016. But I, I am very happy that they're mentioning that book because that book is, I mean, a lot of people are turning to that for an option. And you can, you can look at it and see, well, does, do you think that works? Does it, not, does it not work? I mean, if you read the book, I definitely would love to get your thoughts and opinion on it. But let's see what they have with the St. Peter option. By Rod Dreher. That book has had a lot of influence. It was on the bestseller list for a time. And then there's another book that he released, uh, Live Not By Lies, which picks up on... Um, a line by Alexander Solzhenitsyn. That book is billed as a manual for Christian dissidents. And there is much to commend themselves to us in both of these books. But I noticed that the Benedict option, people's reaction to it, inspired a great deal of sullenness, depression, negativity as Christians living in this world. And and I certainly don't think that was his intention with the book, but I, I did notice that as an overarching theme of the reactions to this book. And I was actually, I came upon the book somewhat late compared to most people. And so in the studying at the Benedict option, St. Benedict is billed as the, the father of uh, monasticism and so forth in the West. And so I got to thinking about, you know, what does it mean to live what is the strategy for Christians to live in a post-Christian nation? I think he's got that pegged uh, exactly right. And and for me, it is to be one of joy under persecution and suffering. So in my work in catechesis, and particularly with the table of duties, the Apostle Peter uh, has become very important in his first epistle especially, and how that is made use of by Luther in his discussions of Christian vocation. And so I thought, you know, St. Peter is a bit older than St. Benedict. So that's where the title came from. And the St. Peter option, more than anything else, is that I want the Christian to be an expert on Christ. We are disciples of Jesus, after all, which is not simply that we follow him to learn how to live, but we believe in him, we trust in him because he is our Lord. He is our Savior. He is the one who loves us. He is the one who has given himself to us. In our baptism, we are joined to him. And this makes all the difference 
in the world. And that kind of leads into, you know, the, the theme for this first podcast, Christian Joy and Hope Under Persecution and Suffering. So just to go into a little more detail, what are the strengths of the Benedict Option? Yeah, I think we could say several things in general right now, and then I think we'll spend an entire session discussing the Benedict Option. But I guess the first thing I would say is the Benedict Option gives us a call to take seriously our Christian faith and its implications for the life that we are called to live in this world. So if we are Christians, if we believe in Christ, if we take seriously the Word of God, then there are implications to that life and how we live it in this world. I think... Now, I think that's a very important point. If you are a Christian and you take your faith seriously, that's going to have implications and challenges for how you try to live your life in this world. It's going to challenge you what you can and cannot do. And sometimes you have to say, okay, here's my faith. All right, so how? what does this look like when I'm in this situation or this situation? What can I do? What can I not do? What should I do? What shouldn't I do? I think Christians know that their faith has implications in how they live. The, the problem is, and, and, I, and I think this is very important. I don't think, I, I think in many situations, and I know some of you may disagree with me here, but I think if you think about this, that it's just not always as easy. Like, okay, here's a situation. Open up the Bible. This verse tells me specifically what to do. No, in many cases, you may have principles in the Bible, and then you have to take those principles and say, well, I think that's applicable here. I think I'm going to apply it here, and that's what that looks like. But the only problem is someone else could take the same passage of Scripture and say, well, I don't know if that's applicable there. And even if it is applicable, I don't know if that's the way I would apply it. So the, the problem is we have the Bible, we have our faith, we have the Bible, and exactly, we're not given though very, very specific directions sometimes and exactly what we can and cannot do and what, how we should act. And we have, to, the best we can do is take this principles that we have in scripture and figure out how to apply them, which leads to lots of different perspectives and lots of different options, which then leads sometimes to a lot of disagreement. And in many cases, a lot of frustration because you're like, wait a minute, that Christian tells me I shouldn't be doing this, but that church says it's okay to do this. And wait, I'm, I, wait, I can't, what? And you've got a list, you know, a mile long of all the do's and the don'ts. And sometimes I think many Christians just throw up their hands. They're like, you know what? You guys can't even agree on what I can and cannot do. Just forget it. I'm just going to live the life the best way I can. And I think that that is something the church needs to consider that there's so many different people yelling at you and what you can and cannot do, that sometimes it just seems like, well, you know what, y'all, you figure it out. In the meantime, I'm just going to try to live out my Christian life to the best of my ability. And, and I wish sometimes that there was a more unified voice, but the reason there's not a unified voice is because, again, we just have principles. We're not given specific directions. Now, for some of the people in the Bible, they are given specific directions. Paul gives specific directions for how those in the city of Corinth were to live in regards to some of the things going on in the city of Corinth. Now, we can take some of those principles and see how they apply. Some of them, we don't know exactly how they apply, and it leads to a lot of questions and sometimes confusion. Another strength of the book is his analysis of the roots of the current cultural decay 
its history, its origins. I think there's much to commend itself to us in his discussion. I think that he talks about the sobriety of the Christian mind. Monastic themes, which we should resonate with, are the place of prayer, the centrality of prayer in the Christian home and in the church. The conduct of the repentant life, and the Apostle Peter will also talk a good deal about this. His book represents a call to serious catechesis. And of course, I resonate with that, as opposed to quick entrance into the church, easy come, easy go. You know, what? let us lay down the the way of life that is found in Christ and, and what this means, and to take seriously the importance and the centrality of catechesis. I think also then finally, the church has its own culture, which is distinct from the world. And that he emphasizes. But it ought to be, I would say, it ought to be something that is offered to the world, not simply to protect ourselves from the intrusions of a false belief from the world and the evils of the world, but for the benefit of those who do not know Christ. So the church has its own culture, but, but I would argue that that culture is to be held up to the world in a similar way that the Old Testament church was unique in how she lived, and that in itself had a missionary character to it. And so in First Peter, you have First Peter 2.9, that life is lived as a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We are his own peculiar people to proclaim the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And, and that call to praise in our catechesis and our witness to the world is, is where I would take it a step beyond. In that vein, what's the weakness or the weaknesses of the Benedict Option, in your opinion? Yeah, and, and, and I don't want our study over the course of the weeks that we spend together simply to be a, you know, a negative critique of his books, but I think that, that there are a couple of things that we should highlight. I think number one, and you have to understand that Rod Dreher is a former Roman Catholic and now Eastern Orthodox, so his view of anthropology, of humanity, the fall into sin and the corruption of original sin, and then what is the kingdom of God, and what does the kingdom of God on earth look like? How, does, how is it to be understood? A lot of those assumptions and understandings on his part are conditioned by his particular confessional background as a former Roman Catholic and now as an Eastern Orthodox person. So I would say he, there's a failure to adequately understand and assess the problem of human sin and its devastating consequences on the human condition. Now, I think that's very important. Whenever we're talking about culture and what we do and how we engage it and our opinions about it, we have to start with a correct understanding of human depravity, that people are totally depraved. I think that is such a fundamental place to start with Christianity, that the human heart is desperately wicked. It's deceitful above all things, that all people are born dead in their trespasses and sins, that we are totally depraved. I would strongly emphasize that. And then that that's one way to always realize, okay, culture, I can't, and um, um, please note, so, so I'll just give you an example. That means why would I want to then try to, quote unquote, make a culture who's totally dead in their trespasses and sin live like Christians 
because they're dead in their trespasses and sins. What the culture needs then is not rules to try to fix it. They need regeneration and salvation. So because the, the problems of everything we see in culture arises from total depravity. That, that's the issue. They need the gospel. The world needs the gospel, which again gets into why I don't think political solutions fix anything ultimately because the, the, pro, the root of all the problems is total depravity. But that's going in a, a completely different direction. That's that's going that's going more with with my approach, right? Right now he's critiquing the Benedict option, then he's going to put forth the St. Peter option, and in the middle of there you're going to find out that I may not agree with either option. Well, you can you can figure that out for yourself what which one you agree with. Here we go. Let's continue. Secondly, the failure to understand the essential role of Christian suffering and persecution in bearing witness to Christ. Now, I've got to be careful here because he talks a lot about Christian suffering and he talks a lot about persecution, but I don't think that it is adequately articulated as the way in which we uniquely bear witness to the grace of God for the enemies of God. So you have passages like in St. Paul that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And in this is love, not that we love God, but that he first loved us and gave himself for us in St. John's epistle. So the essential role of suffering and persecution, it's not simply that we show how committed we are to the Christian faith by being willing to suffer, but that our suffering as Christians and as the body of Christ is the incarnation of Christ, so to speak, for the world's salvation. And so to see Stephen being martyred and praying for his enemies, do not hold this sin against them, is the unique aspect of Christian suffering that I don't think is necessarily highlighted sufficiently in his books. And then, and then I would finally say that the power and efficacy of the life-giving Word of God, that is the only power and efficacy for any kind of kingdom of God on earth and the preservation of Christian faith. It's certainly not at all from us and from our actions and from our activities. There are other things that we could say, and we'll talk about it more in the future. What are the table of duties in Martin Luther's small catechism? And do you agree with Pastor Heath Curtis? He asserts that we haven't spent enough time teaching that table of duties. I absolutely agree with that. We focused on, uh, if we're lucky, the six chief parts, and we have not spent any time to speak of in the daily prayer section of the catechism, and then this oft-neglected table of duties, which are passages admonishing the Christian concerning various stations and callings in life. And what the table of duties does is it describes uh, in Christological terms, what the life of faith in Christ looks like in this world. Where do we live the call of the gospel of God's forgiveness and grace in Jesus as husbands and wives and fathers and mothers and so forth? So it really, the table of duties articulates Christology in the life of the Christian. And I like to put it that way because here again, we are disciples of Jesus, not simply that he shows us how to live or a way to live or something of that nature, but as St. Paul would say, the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And the contours of the grace of God for the unworthy and the undeserving, which is what I am 
and what I was prior to becoming a Christian, that shapes the way in which I live, and the table of duties articulates that in all of those particular passages. And and I think this is something else we should note at the beginning. I'm calling this the St. Peter option, you know, living as exiles in a foreign land. But we're going to talk about uh, things that St. John talks about and St. Paul and, and, of course, Jesus himself. There's a great unity and harmony in the whole of the New Testament. And uh, we're just going to use... Uh, the Apostle Peter and his first epistle kind of is our touchstone for our discussions. And that is where we will go next. We'll find there in 1 Peter 1, a baptismal doxology. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. All right, we'll stop right there. So we're, we're obviously going to have to turn in this into a multiple, a multi-part series. I, I didn't want to, I, I, I didn't realize they were going to go past the break. I didn't realize that this is really was the beginning of a series. So they're going to do a series on this and it will be available issues, etc. Subscribe to the podcast and you can go through each, all the different episodes and look for anything that says the St. Peter option. And you can listen and tell me what you, what you think. Now he talked about the table, table of duties from Luther's small catechism. Now I've got, I've got a copy of it right here on my iPad. I've got my, 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 I call famous, my very old uh, copy of Luther's Small Catechism uh, in a hardbound copy. Let me see here. Do I have it here? Um, do I have the table? If the table of duties listed here? Let me see here. Okay, give me a second here. Yeah, tables of duties. Oh, here we go. Yeah, they are, they are here. All right, here we go. Um, table of duties. This is on page 25. If you look up Luther's table of duties, you can find it for yourself. He says that this, that, that he feels that they've spent not enough time teaching the table of duties, which then would be somewhat a part of their, I guess, kind of option and how we are to live. But I'll just kind of explain what the table of duties is so that you'll at least have an idea if you're not familiar with it here. All right. This is in section three of Luther's small catechism. Um, table of duties or certain passages of scripture for various holy orders and estates whereby these are severally to be admonished as to their office and duty. The table of duties basically says, okay, here is your duty when you find yourself in this particular area of life. This is what you are required to do. So this is kind of your guidelines. These are, these are your principles in which you are to take in these specific areas of life. So he has first to bishops, pastors, and preachers, all right? He tells us what our duties are as a pastor, as a preacher, a bishop, overseer, that kind of thing, all right? Now, then, th- those are to, to the pastors. Next, what is the duty of those who listen and hear pastors and teachers? And it gives all of their responsibilities. And all of these are just scriptures. He doesn't explain anything. It's just scriptures, right? Then he goes down to of civil government. What is your responsibility? What is your duty to civil government? And then he gives scripture. Of subjects. Uh, in other words, those servants, you could say slaves, those who are subjects to that government, or you could put it in, in that particular uh, case. And he's, he's got a bunch of scripture here on what uh, subjects are to do. Then he has uh, two husbands. Then he has two wives. Then he has two parents. Then he has two children. Then he has two servants, hard men, and employees. Two employers. To the young in general. To widows. 
and to all in common. So he lays out, here is your table of duties for every for these areas of life. This gives you a general idea of how you're to conduct yourself no matter what's going on in the world. Doesn't matter if it's 2021 or if it's 1987 or 1887. Here, these are scriptures that tell you what to do. And I think that's very, very important. Whenever we have all of these different options, the Benedict option, the St. Peter option, and everyone comes up with their new little model and then they market it. And then usually there's books and then there's Bible study guides. And then, you know, okay, it turns into the publishing world gets behind it. Before we go look at, and I'm not saying we don't look at all of these options because I'm always willing to look at everything. I think that it's always important to set up, okay, what, do the scripture say, what are the clear principles given to me in scripture? This is what I tried to do at the beginning of the pandemic as I tried to say, okay, guys, we need a pandemic toolkit. And that pandemic toolkit are here are the scriptures. These are some basic principles we have to apply during a pandemic. Love your neighbor, right? We believe in the sanctity of life right? We believe life is sacred. We want to protect and preserve life. So what can I do to love people? What can I do to protect and preserve life? What can I do? The scriptures at nowhere would say, worry about your rights, fight for your right. The the scriptures don't have anything to say about that, right? That's not a part of the Christian toolkit. For we, we are to obey those who have authority over us. That is scripture. But what I saw (laughs) what I've seen in the church is, wait a minute, culture has lost its mind. I don't believe in this whole pandemic thing. Who cares what scripture says? Here's my new option. And now we come up with the the COVID-19 option, which basically says, I'm not going to follow that. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do what I want. Well, wait a minute. It's supposed to be the scripture option, not the Benedict option, not the St. Peter option, the Bible option. And yes, I understand the Bible doesn't always give us specific directions and what to do, but it gives us basic guidelines. And what Luther did in the table of duties is outline just a a few scriptures for each area of life saying, this is your duty. This is what you are to do. And we need to be better at establishing that. Look, the culture, I'm just going to say a couple of things here, right? And I'm sorry we didn't get as far into this as, 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 as I wanted to, but at least it introduces it to you and you can go listen. And what I'll try to do is I may grab, I may grab all of the episodes. Here's what I promise to do. I may not get to it to this, this evening. I mean, it's been, it's, you know, by the time Sunday night gets here, I'm usually wiped out, but I'll try to get to it tomorrow. I'll go through issues, et cetera. And any episode that deals with the St. Peter option I will take the episode and embed it at theologycentral.net in the blog section. So you don't even have to go look. You can just go to theologycentral.net, go to the blog section, and it'll be the St. Peter option, part one, the St. Peter option, part two. I don't know how many how many parts there have been. And you can listen to what issues, et cetera, has to say. And then we can have a discussion about it. You can email me, or if you're part of the Theology Central group on Swell, you can post your thoughts and opinions there. What, what... What option is the right option? What should we do? Should we borrow from St. Benedict? Kind of the, you know, basically you're going back to a monastery mindset where we withdraw, isolate, build these communities and kind of cut our, our, our and I'm, I'm oversimplifying the Benedict option, but kind of in a sense, isolate ourselves. Is that the solution? 
Or no, do we live right here in the world? But as we live in the world, here's how we are to live. What, 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 what is the solution? What is the solution? And I, and I have to, I got to throw this out there. All right. Uh, I, I think I should write a book. Maybe I can make some money. Okay. All right. I'm joking. But we've got the St. Benedict option. We got the St. Peter option. These are all options in how we are to live our lives in a post-Christian culture. Are you ready for this? Are you waiting for this? Okay. All right. Here we go. Are you ready for this? Are you waiting for this? I don't know if you're waiting for this, but are you ready for this? All right. Here we go. How are you going to live in a post-Christian church? Everyone in the church is worried about what's happening in the culture, but I'm telling you the church is going to get worse and worse and worse. I believe this is biblical. The church is going to become more and more corrupt. While you're sitting there figuring out what are you going to do with this big, bad, evil culture, right? What are you going to do about that? What do what are you going to do about a church that's being politically hijacked and moving further and further away from biblical historical Christianity? That's, to me, that's a more pressing question than how do I live in an, uh, an ungodly, you know how I live in an ungodly culture? I try to live godly, okay? I try to follow scripture. That's what I try to do. Now, yes, there are always going to be situations. What do I do about this? What do I do in this particular? And I know some of you are being forced with some difficult decisions. You may be in a situation where you're going to lose your job unless you get the COVID vaccine. What should you do? Maybe you're worried about the COVID vaccine. Maybe you know, maybe you don't like being told what to do. What are you going to do? Like there's always different issues that can arise at any particular time. Yes, those are things, but I think the general principle is pretty straightforward. Here is scripture. Now, how much do you withdraw? Do you cancel your Netflix? Do you get rid of your television? Do you, do you not listen to secular music? And all you do is listen to sermons and hymns and, and you, and, and you don't, you know, you, you just hang out with, with fellow Christians. Like, I mean, how, what do you do there? Nobody ever agrees on that. So you can adopt one of these options and try to figure out how you should conduct yourself. Or I think we have a more biblical approach and not just reduce it to one or two verses or one or two options. The St. Peter option looks like it's going to focus on first Peter or on first, you know, on, on, on what Peter had to say. But remember, we got to consider all of scripture as we try to figure this out, but the culture is going to get worse. What do we do? For example, just, just before I went live on the air, just before I went live on the air, I received the following email. Let me see here. Right before I went on the air, if I can find it. All right. I've got um, how many emails show up in any particular few minutes. Okay. I have 70,000 emails currently in my inbox. Okay. Uh, Let's see. All right. Here we go. Yeah. I received this just before I went live on the air. All right. They talk about a movie that uh, has been released. It was shown at uh, a couple of film festivals and basically, they are calling here, what are they calling us to do here? They want us to, I guess, boycott this. They, they want us to, I, I don't know what they want us to do. To, to, they want us to somehow get rid of this movie because this movie is blasphemous. 
against against Mary and it's, it's ungodly and it's horrible. And it does sound pretty over the top and pretty messed up. I'm not going to explain the contents in the movie. Uh, the movie is, uh, see, B-E-N-E-D-E-T-T-A. Benedetta, B-E-N-E-D-E-T-T-A. And yeah, if this is an accurate description of what's in the movie, it sounds pretty messed up. It sounds pretty blasphemous. And it sounds like that this movie was based off a book and what they added to the movie is not even in the book. And they just did it really, just really to to, to intensify the drama, um, I guess just to kind of shock people. It's It sounds really, really messed up if this email is accurate uh, from this organization uh, that sent this to me. I'd have to do more research. But right here just demonstrates, what's your approach? My approach is, I'm not going to boycott it. I mean, in a sense, I'm like, I'm not going to go see it, but it's not because I'm going to organize some boycott. I'm going to send some petition. I'm going to try to get the movie removed from movie theaters. I'm going to try to ban it. I'm not going to do any of that. Why? Why would I do that? Just don't go see it. Why would I dedicate, hey, you lost people. Don't make a movie that's blasphemous to my faith. How dare you? Well, okay, The Chosen is being shown in movie theaters. So what if atheists were like, how dare you tell me that there's some God and that Jesus was the son of God? That's offensive. I want movie theaters to ban The Chosen. Now, now Christians would get upset about that. Why? Well, because you would say, how dare you? You're trying to, that's religious persecution. Well, if you're going to try to silence other people's perspective, try to get it silenced, try to get it removed, try to stop theaters from showing it, then don't get mad when the same principle gets applied to you. So I think living in a Christian, or living in a world, I want other people to have the same freedom that I want. If I, if I want Christians to have the freedom to make a movie, preach a sermon, do a podcast, then I want people who mock Christianity, blaspheme Christianity, to have the freedom to put forth their perspective unless you're now calling for some kind of theocracy, which then, well, leads to all kinds of problems. But see, that's all dealing with how do you engage the culture? My thing is, okay, you made a movie that blasphemed the things of God. All right, you're lost. You're unregenerate. I don't need you to fix your movie. I need you, I need that person to receive the gospel so that it will fix their heart. <laughs> Does that make sense, right? It's not about winning all of these cultural battles. So now it'll be interesting how many different Christian websites pick this up. and like, we've got to stop this movie. What are we going to do? And I've, I've seen it so many times on Christian radio. They'll be like, you need to cancel your Netflix account immediately because they have a blasphemous movie on there. I'm like, well, first of all, Netflix has all kinds of questionable content. Oh, but now, but we're going to now try to make Netflix only show the movies that we want. Well, what if you try to get a Christian movie on Netflix and then the lost people say, we're going to cancel our accounts unless you get rid of the Christian movies. How about here's the thing. Netflix provides all kinds of movies from all different points of view. If you want to watch one, you watch it. And if you don't, you don't. <laughs> Whoa. Oh, whoa, everybody sit down. Well, I just, I just went deep there, right? You know, whoa, whoa, that's, that's, I remember in the 80s when it would be, you know, when a Madonna had a, a couple of her songs that were like, you know, we want this removed from radio. We want her videos removed from MTV. I'm like, just don't watch it. Just don't listen. 
Okay. No one is making you. No one's going to make you. Hey, you're going to go see that movie that's blasphemous to the things of God when it comes to the Virgin Mary. It sounds pretty messed up. Okay. You're go- no, nobody's going to make you go. So just don't go. And, and what, I, what always drives me crazy is this is a movie that probably nobody would ever hear of. Probably nobody would ever care. Probably nobody would ever even pay attention to. It probably would have had eight people watch it. Now Christian organizations are going to protest and make a big deal out of it, which will only lead more people to go see the thing. I don't know why Christians never catch on to that. Just ignore it. You don't have to watch. If there's something on Netflix you don't like, don't watch it. It's not that hard. No one is forcing you. If you don't like something on one channel, turn the channel. Go to a different streaming service. Watch something else on that streaming service. But see, that's a different approach to culture. Some say not only must we withdraw, then we must try to impose our view of culture on a lost and dying world. And I don't see the Bible telling me to impose culture on a lost and dying world. I don't think I have to run from it. I don't think I have to hide from it, but I don't have to impose it. How about I just live out my Christian life in the midst of it? So, all right, I know we didn't even get far into the St. Peter option. We'll definitely have to come back and uh, listen to uh, some of this in in another episode. But even if I don't get to it, it's there. You now know it's there. I I challenge you. Here's, Here's my challenge. Get the book, The Benedict Option. Get the book, The Benedict Option. I really do challenge you. Again, if you're part of the Theology Central a book club, you just got a notification about 15 minutes ago. The Benedict Option, A Strategy for Christians in a Post-Christian Nation. Get the book, read it. I, th- I think the paperback came out in 2018 and the hardback was 2016. I think maybe now, now we can clarify that. All right, but get the book, all right? Read it. If, if you say, well, I'll read the book, but I don't have money, let me know. If we have money, I'll buy you a copy of the book. Analyze it, think about it. Then we'll listen to the St. Peter option. You can look at, okay, here's two different options. What's, what's good? What's bad? And then you can try to, try to articulate your own option, your own views. I, I, my views, I, I, my, people hate my views, but I just kind of like, okay, the world's going to be the world. I, 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 I've never... I've never been that worried about what the world does. I'm always worried about what the church does. So while we're sitting there coming up with options and how to deal with a post-Christian nation, I think we're ignoring what we're really going to have to face, a post-Christian church. Because I think, the, I think the, the, the corporate church is going to become apostate as we move closer and closer to the end. I really believe that's biblical. And if that's true, we're going to need an option in what to do then, not what to do with the culture. Maybe I'm wrong. All right, there we go. I, uh, uh, I hate when this happens. I I really do because we didn't get we didn't really get to the meat of it, but that's okay. They spent more time talking about the Benedict option at the beginning than I thought they would. But I, I think they absolutely have to do that. They got to distinguish their option from the Benedict option. Probably the, the most the biggest takeaway from this is the Table of Duties uh, by Luther. Uh, you can look at all of the, just, hey, here's your, here's your responsibility in this area of your life. Here's your responsibility in this area of life. And I think it's a, a, a good starting point. I think it's a good starting point.
And you, you can, if you, if you can't find the table of duties, let me know. I'll get a copy of them and I'll try to put them on the blog as well, theologycentral.net. So maybe tomorrow I'll spend all day updating the blog. All right. All right. I'll stop right there. Thanks for listening. I, I wish we could have done more, but I think that's a, a good start. And uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see. We'll see what your reaction is to all of this. Cause I guarantee you've got strong opinions. I bet you have strong opinions on a lot of things in the culture and what a Christian should or shouldn't do. And I guarantee you, we may not agree. And that's perfectly okay because I want you to have the freedom to be wrong. I, I, I'm joking. I'm joking. No, but I do. I, but I, I just know that Christians have disagreed on these kind of things for 2,000 years and they're never going to agree because everyone has a different perspective on what you do when you walk outside the church. Everybody has a different perspective on how they engage culture. I mean, even in my church, I've had people with very, very different opinions on it. Some are like, don't own a television. Don't, you know, no kids do not go to a public school. I mean, now, and we've had, we've had lots of, most of our families have always homeschooled in our church, but we've never had like, oh, if you, if you send your kid to a public school, you're a bad parent. We've never had that. Just for some reason, we attracted more homeschool families than, than public school families. But, but I mean, but some people are like, no, if you send your kid to a public school, you're basically committing a sin. And some people are like, oh, wait, you're saying you're, you're going to homeschool your kid? What are you going? You're ruining that kid, not going to have any social skills. What are you doing? Very different approaches to culture. Very, very, very different approaches. And so, um, you know, I, my kid must go to a Christian university. They, they must. I'm, they're not going to go to a secular university and be brainwashed by the liberals. I mean, that's some people are very strong on that. Everyone has very specific opinions. And so those are all different options. There you have it. You can email me newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. All right. Everyone have a great day. I'll be back on the air here shortly. God bless.